Giant's Causeway is a geological marvel located in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, where basalt columns make a gorgeous hexagonal pattern that look like steps leading into the sea. This led the early Irish to come up with some great stories about their formation. Of course, those stories are not part of the tales of the Tuatha Dé Danann, but belong to the Finian cycle of myths, which take place much later chronologically. I'm not telling that story, not yet anyway, but that is the setting we are in today's episode. If you ever get the chance, look up Giant's Causeway, or better yet, visit, as soon as quarantine allows. Let's get started. Previously on Godessie. Free of the Fomorians, Lu has been tasked with uniting his people by the former king of the Tuatha Dé Danann, Nuada, whose lack of a left hand prevents him from being king. Turning to his greatest enemy, Turin, Lu seeks the Dagda, the great chief and druid of their people, and with the help of the Dagda's sons Angus and Medir, now seeks to free the giant from bondage. Welcome to Godessy, Episode 12, The Giant at the Causeway. It disturbed him what he saw. From the hill he spied what looked like forty fires burning brightly, and around them a host of Fomorian, deformed and normal, monstrous and fearfully normal, dancing there to perverse music, horns and drums. A terrible sight, a disheartening sight. There were just so many of them, and the land a hideous skeletal thing with nothing growing upon it. Lou felt ill. Lou felt angry. Lou wanted to kill them all. Lou felt powerless. They're not bad dancers if you give them a chance, said Angus, whispering. Medir, on the other side of Angus from Lou, scoffed. That you dance with them is disgusting, Angus. They're Fomorians. Both brothers were well-formed, carrying the same charm inherited from the Dagda, but having separate mothers. Medir, it seemed, was related to Nemig, a war chief of one of the previous invaders of Ireland, and husband to Nemig, a face of the Morrigan. Despite this, he carried no gloom, no cruelty, instead only martial prowess. His strategic mind was keen, and he had created a workable plan from Lou's ideas. It had been Bowen who suggested they bring Medir, and that worked in their favor. Lou would rather have Medir than Angus if he could choose between them. It's easier to slit your enemy's throats when you've broken bread with them, Medir. If you look hard enough, you can find even the right folk among the Fomorians. Lou shushed them. Where's the club, most importantly? The storied club of the Dagda was here, hidden somewhere in the shadows. Medir scanned the area, trying to make sense of the darkness. The sound of the crashing sea nearby, a loud thing without end, was harsher here than in further south in Me or over in Connick. It was the deep end of twilight, a blue thing of dark clouds and darker land. There was a ruggedness here, a harshness that made Lou question sanity. The angles were odd, almost off, yet perfect in the kind of symmetry found only in nature. Yet even here, higher up, he could see them, the hexagonal steps that carried on into the sea. He broke his own rule. Why is it called that, the giant's causeway? Angus shook his head. A story not yet told, true or not. A giant made them for want of conquest. The same giant destroyed this for fear of reprisal. Let the tale play out in its own time. Medir shot Lou the same glance he knew he was forming on his face, then shook his head. Angus is an oddity, grandnephew, so better not to question it. Now look here. 
Do you see that leather tent there? The deer pointed, and in the center, there was a tall thing flapping occasionally as the wind and mist came upon it. Within, he saw it, the club. A long, terrible, gnarly thing. Not unlike a shillelagh, unworked yet almost lacquered against time. So naturally was the gleam barely reflected any light. Long and thick at the top, it grew thinner towards the grip, which seemed to become even more gnarly. Past where the dagda's giant hands lifted it, for who else could even attempt it? There was a depiction, faces at the end of the club, screaming, hideous faces that seemed to make up the rest of the staff, screaming and trying to escape like phantasms. Are the tales true about his club? Angus looked away from it, inspecting the rest of the people down there. With a swing, he can lay low more than a dozen men. Should he wish to revive them, he need but only tap them with the butt of the club. The Dagda's staff has seen more life and death than most see in a lifetime, to say nothing of my giant father himself. Madir spoke next. None of us would be able to carry it. We need to get him to the club, which is quite a trek. Look there at the edge of the world. He pointed out past the furthest fire, where the silhouette of the man against the sea was visible. The Dagda was nude, his back covered in scars and his hair a wiry, unkept thing, even by the standard Lou remembered. He sat there, still five feet tall, even when seated, and his feet in the water, bound in chains, even at a distance, Lou could tell were enchanted. How do we break him out of there? Lou had to ask. Angus grinned. The harp, of course. He indicated behind him to the pig-drawn cart, upon which the harp stood, bound by rope. It was almost as tall as Lou was, made of oak, with strings that shone in the darkness. Knots ran around its carved interior. In the light, it looked yellow and green, a gorgeous thing, too big to carry. How are we going to get that to him, though? Madir smiled. We? You, Lou, are going to disguise yourself and get that to the Dagda. Angus is going to distract the Fomorians while I support him and protect him in the light. Just in case. You want me to sneak into the Fomorian camp, leading two giant pigs carrying a giant harp, take it to the prisoner, and... Are you absolutely mad? How is this harp going to help us fight an army? Angus shook his head. You're under the impression fighting is what we're here to do, Lou. That's what got Father captured to begin with. Do you know how much we had to pay in sheep and pigs to compensate for the loss of those Fomorian lives he took? Children starved because of his rampage. No, the harp will help get us out of here, but we will not fight. If we fight, we die. It made little sense to him, but Lou looked back at the harp. It had some sort of magic to it, he knew, but not the exact details. He would not ask. Instead, he looked to the cauldron of plenty. It was smaller now than he remembered. Are you going to feed them, Adir? That might work in our favor. Madir considered, then nodded. A good suggestion. I think I will. Father will want his relics back, but until then, I can put it to good use. If it works for me, that is. He hadn't considered that. Lee began forming his own plan. Give me your cloak, Madir. His great-uncle obeyed, handing him his gray cloak. Lou threw it over the harp and tied it tight with some spare rope from the cart. Throwing his own hood over his head, he gathered some water and dirt from the hexagonal ground and wetted his face, smearing it. Someone punch me in the shoulder. Madir gave him a quizzical glance, 
but did as Lou asked, almost knocking the shoulder out of socket. He groaned, rubbing it, and hunched his back a bit. The punch would make it authentic, easier to deal with the pain if he hunched his back. Angus laughed. Getting into the part, I see, grandnephew. A bad look on you, but you play it well. I'm half Fomorian, what could I say? You two get along. I'll use the distractions to my advantage. They made quickly down a small segment of the causeway's walkway, entering a partially fortified Fomorian camp. A horn rang out at their arrival, and arms were taken up, but soon Angus struck a chord and began speaking. Friends, please, it's your old friend Angus. Surely you've not forgotten me? The Fomorians at the front, clicking monstrosities with multiple arms, or simply humanoid men and women with shoddy weapons, stood there until a commander, a short man with a crooked foot, came forward. Angus, it's been too long. How's the honey mead coming? Angus reached to his belt and produced a picture. Fergus, I was wondering if I'd find you here. Try it out, see if it's to your liking. Angus really did know them. That sat wrong with Lou, and from the look on Madeir's normally stoic face, he didn't like it any more than Lou did. Nonetheless, this was a necessary step in the plan, and Angus played it effortlessly. My brother Madeir and I thought we would bring you refreshments and make sure father isn't causing too much trouble. We don't want any more trouble the likes which we suffered when he was captured, so we've brought his cauldron of plenty and I'll play you music to enhance your merriment. A whoop went out throughout the crowd, excitement rising. Soon Madeir held the cauldron forward to the crowd as they excitedly rushed forward for food, fully cooked poultry and game and vegetables and fruit the likes of which they had never seen coming forth. Lou saw his opening and took it. Walking unevenly, he led the pigs down a descent further east, well out of sight and earshot, save for the song Angus now played and the singing and dancing of the crowd, which was animalistic despite the music from Angus's lyre. The fires grew and Lou continued onward, through the dents where the Fomorians had been before, through the trash and rubble and waste they left in their wake. They were animals, he thought, hideous monstrous animals, whether they looked the part or not. The cart and pig struggled with the causeway step, the uneven walkway forcing him to take the long way every time. What few Fomorians did not rush to Madeir and Angus for food and song lay on the ground, either in drunken slumber or motionless death, eyes staring wide, covered in red or black ichor. The Fomorians had no sense of camaraderie, it seemed, no sense of decency. They beat their problems into submission unless someone cunning was in charge. And here, there was no such cunning. It was a wonder that the Dagda was even alive at all with this kind of brutality so at the forefront. As they finished eating, the Fomorians renewed their revelry, a rough affair for all involved. The numbers there were equally male and female, regardless of whether they were hideously monstrous or not. Their dances were grotesque, aimless things that seemed to make no sense, no rhythm, no sense of connection to the beat. They ate as they danced, covered in the natural grease of the poultry and meats, and seemed lost in their own world. Lou continued, his back to them now, dragging the nervous pigs along. The Dagda was near now, left alone by his captors. The sea lapped at his legs, the hard waves lashing against the causeway and drenching him. It must be refreshing, Lou thought, regardless of whatever work they forced him to do. All Lou had to do was get him the heart, unless he was as broken as Nuada. He had... Stop! Who goes there? A voice came from somewhere in the shadows, somewhere Lou had not looked. 
He cursed, wanting for a weapon but not allowed to have one by Madeir. He would have to play this one by wits. He looked only partially to his left for signs of the voice's origin. From the sea, the woman stepped up, not as tall as Lou, wielding a spear, fine of make compared to her companions. Her tattered rags failed to conceal how thin she was, her hood seeming to enhance the hungry look in her eyes. Lou thought quickly. I have come to grease the prisoner's enchanted chains to keep the magic strong. He did not recognize his own voice, a craggy thing that was a combination of Elatha's and the old man he slew on the beach upon his arrival back in Ireland. The woman looked back to the Dagda, his chains held tightly. I wasn't told you'd be coming. My lady sends... Our lady is a busy woman, as you know. I came in an emergency. She feared the last check of the chains was not enough and that the giant would break free. Lou looked to the Dagda as well. Can't have the brute breaking free lest he get to his mighty club. The woman chuckled. We would grind him to the dust before he would reach it. Go ahead, and when you are done, let us eat what remains of those pigs. The woman walked back to the sea, far enough out of earshot that Lou felt comfortable proceeding. The deception had worked. Tirnanog had trained him for truly every skill and every situation. The path became nothing but broken and even steps, and Lou struggled to get his pigs to go forward. They would not, in fact, resisting each step. The mist lashed him, salt burning his fading wounds from the beating at the hands of the Fomorians he had received. At last, Lou gave up. He would get the Dagda's attention in other ways, and then give him the harp as he needed. How heavy could it possibly be? You are the Dagda, he said, not sure how to start talking to him. Could you have been any slower, son of Kian? Lou swallowed. So he knew too. How did you know I was coming? It's what I do, Lou. I know things. Knowing does not make the waiting any easier. You brought the pigs? Before he could respond, the Dagda had turned, taking one of the pigs and snapping the rope. He did not look at Lou, the giant lifting the pig effortlessly as it squealed, and breaking its neck, brought it to his mouth. In his hands, the pigs seemed to cook in a single moment, an explosion of heat. The Dagda ate greedily, ripping newly cooked flesh from bone and large bites that sent blood and grease flying, Lou covering his face. The ferocity was that of a man who had known no meal in ages, and abuse the Fomorians fermented against him. It took no more than seven bites before the pig was stripped, and the Dagda placed the skeleton down. Oh, I hate doing that to the poor thing, but he'll get better. He reached a massive hand into the water and began to clean himself, blood and flesh stuck in his massive beard. Lou stared at the man, horrified. What do you mean it will get better? Oh, did Angus not tell you? One pig grows, the other pig cooks at my touch. In the morn, the pig will be fine, and the other will be ready to be cooked. I spare them most days, but sometimes you have to eat just to keep them from getting too big. Now, you've got the harp? He reached with his massive hand to the cart, but they did not make it. Lou undid the rope and lifted, failing to realize how heavy it was. Did the Dagda not carry it on his belt at the Battle of the Fearbolg? Groaning as he lifted it over the cart's side, he brought it to the Dagda, who effortlessly lifted it in one hand, no longer restrained by his chains. Oh, I have missed this. Let me see here. Let us tune it. Angus has neglected you, has he not, my darling? 
He began to tune the harp, seeming now almost small in his hands. Each string rang out in its own way, different from the way Angus's lyre sounded, though no less lyrical. Angus's lyre spoke true enough, but this was the sound of music at its purest, of ordered structure made manifest in each plucking, each simple note that flowed into the next. The tuning was difficult, for Lou saw no mechanism for which to do it, yet each noise changed with each pluck. It must be by magic, Lou realized, and soon enough the dactyl was done. Now, let's break these chains. A series of twelve notes was played, and with each one, the chains lit up, turning a bright blue before shattering into black dust, flying in all directions. The Dagda stopped, rubbing his wrist, his ankles, his hips. In that moment, Lou remembered his great-grandfather was nude, uncovered and unkept, and utterly unashamed. He tried to look away, scared of what he saw. Standing, the giant was almost eight feet tall, a mass of muscle and hair and fat that had aged poorly. The pig had filled him out almost instantly, though it left behind signs of bondage. The scars all over him, the graying of his hair at his temples and chest, the chafing of his wrist, all made him seem worse for wear. The Dagda's bright eyes, working quickly, caught the fire in the Fomorian camp in them gleamed triumphantly. Bring the pig, Lou. It's time to show that young pup how to play a tune. Taking the harp up in his arms like a lyre, he began a march, playing it effortlessly with a rhythmic step. Combining his tune with Angus's own, the Fomorians began to take note. Yet, for the enchanting sound, did not react poorly. The sound had them charmed, smiling, watching motionless with glee. They did not seem to notice the sagging belly, the bouncing fat of the man, the gleam of sweat and brine on his toned arms, the balding of the dome of his head. Merely the smile, his shimmering eyes, and the sound of the song that soon overtook Angus's own. Then he began to sing with a voice that carried over each stone, each step of Giant's Causeway, seeming to hum on its own in response. The vibrations were in Lou's ears, his stomach, his feet and hair, and every Fomorian felt it too. They grabbed their ears, listening to a song with no words, but only emotion and tent. The will that they sleep, Lou realized. Not he. He did not feel the need, but instead the Fomorians, one by one, knelt down, curling up, and began to sleep. There was no thought of location, presence next to a fire, merely that they needed to rest. Those who were too close did not respond to the searing heat of the fire beside them. They merely fell in slumber a slumber of ages. Soon, of the thousands of Fomorians, not one remained standing. Their snores were loud, a chorus above the waves and fire. Angus and the deer stood nearby, the latter smiling to his father. Angus's smile was lesser, weakened, but the Dagda was genuine. His song stopped. My boys, I had hoped the versions of this I saw included both of you. I have missed you dearly, both in and out of my mind these past few years. Is all in order? Are your mothers well? Both answered in the affirmative. Medir, six feet tall and made of muscle, walked to his father and offered him his hands. The giant lifted him up and hugged him, the nudity seeming not to bother either of them. Angus seemed sheepish, less for the nudity of his father than his being here, after all that had happened. Yet the Dagda seemed not to mind, though he returned the chill neglect and did not pay his son a glance of or word. Instead, he went for his club, unbinding it with a simple jerk, resting it on his shoulder. 
Lou did well, neither of you will be surprised to know. A wonderful actor, I think. Did they teach you that in the land of youth? Lou nodded, making eye contact, and only eye contact with Adagda. I should like to think I will learn a great many things when I arrive there, but time is of the essence. How long do we have, Lou? Lou calculated. I escaped yesterday. Today, Turian and I rode to Brunaboyne, and then Angus, Medir, and I rode here. I had five days when I escaped. That leaves... Three days, the Dagda interrupted, nodding. Ogma is next, then, and I shall call a meeting of the Druids. After we free Ogma, you must bring word to our people, Lou. All of them. Lou did not understand. A giant wave crashed behind them, drenching the sleeping Fomorians. Not one moved, unless pulled by the water. How can I do that? You were taught many things, Lou, son of Kian. Crossing Ireland in mere steps is one of them, though you don't know it yet. It is applied magic, I like to think. You must do it, because to strike against Brez, we must be quick. Your grandfather, Dian Set, will not be happy at my suggestion, but my days must be spent with him in coming up with a solution to Nawada's conundrum. He must sit at Tara, but how can we do it? Lou thought for a moment. If Nawada's hand is the problem, it must be replaced. The Dagda nodded. Indeed, your grandfather will have more to say on that. He made Nuada a replacement, but it was not enough. Now, I think we should go. Ogma is kept where? Lu indicated to the south, near the center of the isle, west of the Luri. Then there we shall go. He took the skeleton of the dead pig from Lu's cart, then broke the ropes that bound the second pig to the cart. Next, he took the cauldron from a deer's care, and placing both pig and bones within... There came a sound like bubbling. Soon the second pig's head emerged, completely reformed. Take to your horses, I will follow. Lou looked around. Could you, um, cover up? Oh, right. The Dacta took a banner of the, from one of the Fomorians, a long thing that flapped in the wind, and ran it around his waist like a belt, not to cover himself, but to help him carry things. He placed both cauldron and harp on it by hooks that hung from each, and carried his club aloft upon his shoulders. He set forth, naked as the day he was born, making long strides to the south. Lou, Madeir, and Angus struggled to keep up with him on their horses, leaving the sea behind them. Godyssey is written, researched, and produced by Greg Wright. Additional writing and editing by Sidney Yeager, who sings the Song of the Sea. Music by Scott Buckley, who can be reached at www.scottbuckley.com.au. Additional sounds by Tim Kahn. Want to support the show? Leave a spellbinding review on your podcast service of choice, and then sing the Song of Enchantment to your friends and family. Reapply every three to five days as needed. Want early access to the new episodes, news, and an audience with the Andana Shi? Support the show on Patreon, which would be super cool of you. Reach out and say hi on social media at The Goddessy Podcast. Links are in the description, and also written on the back of your hand. You don't remember how it got there. Dread is now your companion. Goddessy updates every Monday. See you next week.